That's interesting, isn't it? If we're living the way that we are, the reason, he says, that we're so distracted, the internet is such a distraction to us, is we actually can't bear to look inside and see who we are truly. We're distracted by things around us, by the buzz of media, by images. We move from one thing to the next. All of it, he says, is a distraction from actually facing who we really are. Because who wants to do that? We as human beings are very, very clever at self-deception. And I suppose the internet is such an aid to that self-deception because we don't have to think even about the self. But what we're going to see in the story that Jesus tells this afternoon is that the Bible gives us a realistic version of ourselves. But it also gives us a livable view of ourselves. Now, if we were to have a realistic view of ourselves, well, many of us would be crushed by that reality. But the Bible gives us both. The Bible gives us a view of ourselves that's realistic, faces the fact of our failures and our flaws, but at the same time gives us an incredible motivation, gives us a profound, unchanging reason to live. That is something that you won't find anywhere in social media or on the internet. Truth and a rock-solid reason to live. Because Jesus tells this story. Did you hear the story that Jesus told? It's quite a familiar one, the parable of the prodigal son. And it's an interesting story because he tells it in the context, if you want to open up there to Luke chapter 15, he tells it in the context where people think they understand God, where people think they know what he's like, but they don't. These people who think they know what God's like are called the Pharisees in the New Testament. They're the religious insiders. They're the popular ones. They're the ones who are politically and socially powerful and religiously convicted. And yet Jesus tells this story because they're the people who have no idea who God is. And he tells it to people who are actually listening to what he says. He tells it to those on the margins of society. Those, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, he tells it to tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors weren't honourable people in the first century. They were seen as national traders, ripping off money off their own nation to give to the ruling Romans. And the sinners were social outcasts. And Jesus tells the story both for those who think they're on the inside but are in fact on the outside and those who think they're on the outside but are in fact on the inside. And so Jesus is a challenge to any of us here this afternoon. He's a challenge to those who think that we're on the inside of Christianity and he's also a challenge to those who think that we might be on the outside. Because the story starts with the son's request. If you have a look there in verse 11, uh, you know, kids are always asking for stuff. And uh, I have a daughter who's six and particularly when she says, poise... I find it very hard to resist whatever she is asking for. But this is no mere small request of an extra toy that a kid doesn't need. Now look at verse 11. This son comes to his father and he says, Give me my share of the estate. What he's effectively saying to his father is, If you're not going to hurry up and die 
Give me all your stuff now. Now, for us in kind of modern Western world, we can see how that's a little kind of, at the very least, impolite. But in its original context, in the first century as it was written, this is more than impolite. This is, well, this is culturally offensive. Worse than that, a scholar who's an expert in the first century in how uh, families and, and uh, kind of culture worked in uh, the Middle Eastern context of the first century, says this, that there is no case of any son asking for his father's inheritance who is in good health. This was a shocking request. This was a request that some scholars even suggest that would have merited the death penalty. Such is the shame. Uh, You might understand this if you come from non-Western culture, the shame that you would bring to the family. The economics of it, our whole other story, but the shame that it would bring to the family. And here's where the story gets interesting. I mean, the request is just, well, it's offensive. But the father, interestingly, what happens in the story? He agrees. He agrees to the request. Um, I imagine he tried to dissuade his son of such a request, but sometimes as kids log into things, you can't change your, their mind. And so no amount of logic or threat or persuasion will have any effect. So the father not only wears the emotional pain of this embarrassing, offensive request that would prefer him dead and the money given to his son, but he also risks the livelihood of this farm that he's been given from his forebearers by selling a third of it. The second son would have received, that's how it worked back then, first son two-thirds, second son third. So he carves off a third of the family estate to put his uh, livelihood and the family's welfare in financial risk. So you can imagine this broken-hearted father hands over the cash. Now once the son has the cash in his arms, we get the sense in the story that he's not waiting for to thank his father. No, he walks off with scorn. Here's a son wanting to be himself, wanting to free himself, to be himself, to live the way that he wants to live. And in his mind, freedom from his father and the tyranny of his rule and his rules is something that he doesn't want, and so he clears out. And we can only guess what drove the younger son to this, but he's so consumed by getting away. But it only lasts for so long. Because as he enjoys for just a fleeting moment the, well, that cash, it dries up. The cash dries up and we learn in that story so does the rain because as he's enjoying himself, the money's gone, a famine hits and so this younger son is now miles, perhaps hundreds of kilometres away from the safety of his family, now in the middle of a famine. So desperate is he to just keep his head above water. We learn there in verse 15 that he hires himself for work, literally joins himself up with who? Not a sheep farmer. Who does he join himself up with in the story? Can anyone remember? A pig farmer. Now, uh, you don't have to know a lot about Jewish culture to work out that working for a pig farmer, for a Jewish boy, is not up there with career aspiration. 
Um, it's more than just a yucky job. Here is a son at the very depths of poverty and shame and disgrace. And now he once felt constricted or restricted by his father's rule, but he's not in a loving relationship now. We're told in the story now he's owned. He's not even loved. He's owned by a foreigner. And this is dangerous because remember there's a famine and pigs can become more important than people in a famine. This once self-assured son who marches up to his father, give me my share of the estate, is humiliated degraded, now here as a foreigner and slave all alone. When Jesus tells his story, he's wanting us to recognise something. He's wanting us to recognise something about the nature of humanity. And this is something the Bible speaks about a lot. It speaks about, well, uh, not just the son having this desire to get away from what he perceives as the tyranny, the meanness of a father's rule. The Bible speaks about every one of us like this. That we often think of God as that kind of father. The kind of father whose rules we feel are so restrictive. Where freedom is found as far as we can away from him. But what this story tells us is that the further we live from God, the less human we become. See, how do you think of God? Is is God that authoritarian figure who wants to spoil your life and your joy? That's how many people think of God. In fact, sadly, that's how many Christian people think of God. But this is exactly why Jesus tells this story. Because they're in the hardest and most difficult of this guy's uh, circumstances. This younger son is forced into a re-evaluation of reality. He's forced into, firstly, a a re-evaluation of himself and also of his father. There in verse verse 17, we have this beautiful little phrase that there in the depths of his despair, he came to his senses. There's something there for that. There's something there for us in that. Often we can't see what's best for us. And often what we do, even as Christian people, is we move away from God thinking that that is best for us. And it's very often in the hardship of life. People in this church can testify to this over and over again. It's very often in the hardship of life that God draws us back. It's not great marketing from God's behalf, come and follow me and it's all going to be fantastic. That's not what he promises. See, the Bible gives us a realistic view of ourselves. This son starts to reframe everything. The assumptions that he'd made about life, about what he wanted out of life, a question. And where does it start? It starts in the way that he considers his father differently. Not as an oppressive tyrant, but as a kind provider who cares well even for his servants, let alone his sons. And so you can see there in verse 18, he's got this speech. You know when you've got something, a big meeting, and you just run the speech over and over in your head just to get it right? Well, here he works up this speech. It's there in verse 18. Here's his speech. He reckons he's going to set out and go back to his father and say to him, Father, 
I've sinned against heaven and, and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, maybe like one of your hired men. Interesting. Here he is, thinking about that moment where he meets his father. And what does he offer? He offers himself as a slave. Because, well, that's about the best you could do, isn't it? He'd occurred this debt. He'd wasted all this money. Here's a kid who needs to learn a lesson. Here's a kid who needs to work the debt that they have incurred. See, what drives him back to his father? What drives him back is desperation. He's got no other option. He's driven by desperation. He has this expectation of the way in which possibly his relationship with his father could work out. But he's not met with demand. He's not met with what he deserves. What is he met with? Well, we're told in this story that remarkably this father is running, kissing and rejoicing. That's where I want to close our time together, just by reflecting on those two, three things, running, kissing and rejoicing. Because in the story, it's the father who first sees the son. And it's the father, in fact, who takes the initiative in this encounter. And this this ancient patriarch, this man of dignity who did not run for anything, bolts and makes a beeline for his son. This son who once ran from him, now this father runs to him. So overwhelmed is this father's love for his son that he abandons all sense of propriety that an ancient patriarch would have had. Have you ever seen the queen run? You can actually see the queen run uh, in the wedding of Charles and Diana. She runs for a couple of steps after the coach, interestingly, because she was so excited, so caught up in the moment where here is this father running to meet this son who has disgraced him, who has abandoned him. There's been too much distance and the father will have it no longer, but it's more than just distance. He runs to this son with arms of enveloping love. See, a lesser father, in fact a good father, might have held back his affection just to test how genuine this son was. A lesser father could have demanded an explanation. A lesser father could have said, look, let's just see if we can work things out, but not this father in Jesus' story. He's not employing, well, let's just see if we can have a little chat. What is he doing? He's not chatting in this story. He's kissing. He's kissing. And as that son is kissed by his father, he begins to know now that it's not harm that might come to him, but it's his father's heart that comes to him. Not an empty kiss, but a kiss of grace. And you can imagine that in this moment, the son is trying to roll out the speech, the one that he's worked up. I'll work it out. I'll prove myself. I'll earn it back. But the father won't have a word of it. The father won't have a word of it. You see, this son is receiving what the Bible understands as grace. Grace is a name, but it's more than a name. It's a concept in the Bible. And it's, a con- it's the concept that's so beautifully illustrated in this story that 
the son experiences the opposite of what he deserves. He deserves punishment, but is forgiven. He deserves estrangement, but is reconciled. He deserves dishonor, but he's honored. His father, even the story goes and gets his robe and his ring, two items of honor given to the son. See, the graciousness of the father is the younger son's only hope. And here we see that this father is bursting full of grace. I've become quite um, uh, uh, intrigued and um, familiar with hamburgers, particularly special type of hamburgers. These kind of places are popping up around the place. And my, my daughter, she has now taken on my love of burgers. And so when I order the burger, it's often she that'll take the burger out of my mouth and finish pretty well three quarters of it herself. And I can't help but think, as much as I love her, gee, wouldn't it be nice to have the, you know, the three quarters of the rest of that burger that she had? But this father's not anything like me. Because you can imagine, this father has forgiven this son. He's honoured this son. But what's remarkable in this story is that Jesus does not focus on the son's relief, say, of being forgiven by his father. What does he focus on? He focuses on the father's joy. That it's the father's joy to forgive his son. He doesn't forgive him begrudgingly. It's cost him so much. But the cost doesn't erode his joy. Because have a look there in verse 23. He says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see what the focus is in Jesus' mind? The focus is on the joy that the father has in forgiving the son. Now for those of us who are Christian, we might know that God forgives us through the death of Jesus. But I think what we too easily forget is that it's the Father's joy, our Father's joy, to forgive us, that he delights in that. But the older son can't see the joy, can he? The older son's complaining. Why is he? Well, you can understand why he's complaining. He might have got that robe, that ring. He's been working hard for the last 10 years or whatever it is. See, the son didn't understand his father, did he? He didn't understand who he was. But you know that eldest son? That eldest son doesn't understand his father either. Because he's been working out in the field, hard-working, loyal, industrious, dutiful. But his mistake was the same as the youngest son's. He thought he was earning through his hard work, his father's affection, through his dutiful effort. See, the father's love is not a product in this story. It's not a product of, well, it's not a product of how hard the eldest son has worked. And the father's love is certainly not a product of, well, how good the younger son has been. The father's love is a product of his own heart. And this is... This is something so important for us to understand, whether we're Christian or whether we're not. Because often we see this idea of turning to God, of repentance, 
when we realise just how far we've missed his mark, just how wrong so often in life we've been, how far from God we've walked away, when we realise that in repentance, the Bible doesn't consider it merely as reminding us of how bad we are. Now the purpose, the ultimate purpose of repentance in the Christian life is that so we might be reminded of how loved we are. See, because in, in life there's, there's two ways we can live. We can live out of guilt. That's how uh, possibly the younger son was living. He thought that he was too far gone for his father, but he didn't know his father's heart. See, to love God is first to be loved by him, to realise that, in fact, we so often in this story are younger sons and older sons, that we think that sometimes by running away from God, that kind of way of thinking and being will bring about a freedom in our life. But often in the hardship, we realise that's not what we thought. And often, for those of us who've been around church a little longer, often we think that we earn the Father's affection by perhaps how good we are, perhaps our religious activity merits in some way God's love to us. But here Jesus is speaking so clearly, I think to everyone here this afternoon, whether you identify as a younger son or as an older son. Jesus is asking us all the question, how do you see God? Do you see him as a father bursting, full of grace, ready to give you the opposite of what you deserve? Or do you see him as a father just wanting a chat? Maybe he'll work things out. This is not what Jesus is offering us. This is not what God offers us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus because we're the ones who deserve punishment, but when we trust in Jesus, we're given forgiveness. We're the ones who deserve estrangement. We've run away thinking that there's freedom without God, but he gives us reconciliation. We're the ones who deserve dishonour, but God has given us honour in Jesus. God is this kind of father that Jesus speaks about. And so for us, we need to ask ourselves the question, are, are we living as a, as a slave before God, trying to earn our way to him? Or are we living as a son, knowing that he loves us, enjoying that reality and knowing the freedom that there is under his rule and in his reign? Have we tasted the kiss of a gracious father? Amen. We're going to stand and